There's only one thing, I think, worse than being overlooked for something that you are sure you deserve, that you hoped for. And that is when somebody else is chosen that you are convinced does not deserve it. Back in year six, year six, I know, I'm holding on to it for that long, uh, the, the class of St Thomas More, uh, we were going to do a big performance. I'm pretty sure this is pretty normal across year six classes across the country. Uh, we were going to do our leaving performance. It was a big deal at St Thomas More. We were uh, called into the classroom to hear the announcement of what it was going to be. There was going to be lots of different auditions uh, as to what part people might play. It was a big deal for us, and it certainly was a big deal for me at that time, and clearly now to some degree. Um, we were called in to hear that it was going to be The Wizard of Oz, now, uh, The Wizard of Oz, uh, what, a, what a film, what a story. Uh, but immediately, as I heard that it was going to be The Wizard of Oz, my attention went to one character. I was desperate to be the scarecrow. <laughs> now, there I was, learning my lines, thinking about how I might play the scarecrow with all my craft and wit um, and we come along to the audition, and we audition back to back. So we're watching others do the same audition, as horrible as a year six student, because in that moment, I looked around the room and I realised my good friend Josh Cranwell wanted to be the scarecrow too. Now, I mean, you can see where this story is going already, but... My audition was pretty polished. I'd practised, like, really hard. I didn't forget anything. And I was convinced at that time, I'm sure wrongly, that I'd nailed it. Josh Cranwell, on the other hand, he uh, fumbled over a few lines, definitely. And a few things he did, I'm not quite convinced they were scarecrow manner. But a few days later, when the cast list was released... We walk down to the notice board outside the library. We're all stood around, and everybody does that thing as they read from top to bottom, scanning for their own name. And disaster. Scarecrow, Josh Cranwell. Gutted. And so naturally I keep reading just to work out what it is that I'm going to be doing. Maybe, a, well, I, don't, I didn't know what I thought I might be doing, but quickly found my name next to the lion. Gutted. Instead of singing If I Only Had a Brain, I was singing If I Only Had the Nerve. I was being the lion. And you know what? Clearly not a big deal to most of you, but at that moment, it was a disaster. And actually, for the months of rehearsals following, I had this growing resentment to Josh Cranwell, my friend. In those, in those, in those rehearsals, when he forgot lines... It's a really big deal to me. When he did things that I'd, I just wasn't sure that was the kind of thing the scarecrow would do, that, that really mattered to me. I was annoyed because I guess deep down, I just truly thought I'd have been a better scarecrow. Deep down, I thought I deserved it more than him. For the next few months, I couldn't shake that resentment. I've remained good friends with Josh Cranwell, thankfully. 
But I just kept thinking about all the ways I'd do things better than him. It annoyed me. Now look, as we look at Matthew chapter 9, the Pharisees, they're annoyed. Just read along with me from verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you can see that inference from the Pharisees' question. If, if Jesus really is the king, if Jesus is this long-promised, powerful Messiah, what is he doing spending time with these immoral people? They would have had a public reputation of being immoral people, the tax collectors and sinners. Why does your teacher eat with them? They don't deserve his presence like we do. Surely the all-powerful Messiah should be spending his time with people like us, thought the Pharisees. You can just imagine the way they asked that question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you see, if it was just a straight question, it would have kind of made sense, wouldn't it? If Jesus really is the long-promised Messiah, the all-powerful king, why, as he arrives on earth, is he spending time with people that aren't good? Why does he eat with people like that? But do you see what they're saying? The Pharisees are saying the unpowerful, unrighteous, undeserving sinners, not like us... They're annoyed because they think they deserve Jesus' attention. They're annoyed because they think they are better than these people. Maybe you hear that and it really grates on you. You think, how can these people be so arrogant to be so critical, harsh in their judgment of others? Those Pharisees, how could they get it that wrong those pharisees i'd never make that mistake they're not like me those pharisees they just think so highly of themselves those pharisees they're so judgmental of others they don't deserve jesus and you see how it creeps in that same thinking we do the very same thing. You might never say outright that there's anything righteous and deserving about you that means you deserve God's favour. But pretty quickly, you might be happy to say that there's people in this world that deserve Jesus much less. And you see the danger of thinking like that, like the Pharisees were in that moment. If you quietly think that there's anything about you that's deserving of Jesus' invitation, then you've completely 
misunderstood what his invitation is. Or maybe this afternoon you feel a little bit more like Matthew. The thing you struggle to grasp about this invitation from Jesus is how it could possibly extend to someone like you. Maybe you feel so immoral that Jesus would never come near you. God would never send a rescuer to you. Maybe there's things in your past, things that are going on right now that that people don't see, that, that plague your conscience. They make you feel so unworthy. Well, look at Jesus' response in verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus invites humble sinners. Jesus invites humble sinners to submit to the Messiah. Just picture a newborn baby, two weeks old and tiny. Now, forgive me if this is a fairly cynical view of a two-week-old baby, but they contribute nothing. They can't do anything by themselves. They can't allow you to do the things that you did before without them. They don't even really give you anything back at that stage. They don't smile. Do they they even open their eyes? I can't remember. (laughs) But they contribute nothing. Like If you're going to be really brutal, at two weeks old, they're just a hassle. And yet, please hear this, they are dearly loved. Dearly, dearly loved. We love them not because of anything they do, not because of anything they contribute In fact, you don't expect anything from them. They don't sacrifice anything. If you try to make a deal with a two-week-old baby, could you just please sacrifice your next feed so that we can have a few more hours sleep? It just doesn't work. Of course. But a parent doesn't love their child because of what they contribute. It's in their nature, a parent, to love them. And so being a baby, being a baby is naturally the most humbling thing. All they do is just cry out for help all the time. They contribute nothing. They they know no other way to get what they need. They cry without hesitation. I've heard this quote accredited to about 10 different people. I'm sure you'll have heard it and probably don't know who said it either. But it's been said that evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Do you see how when you view this invitation from Jesus as God's mercy on you like a baby crying out like a beggar you will humbly accept what you so desperately need and when you do it's only natural that it will be mercy that you extend to others 
like a beggar sharing food. Because just like you, anyone else is like a humble beggar, like a, like a needy baby. But you see what's going on with the Pharisees? They viewed their relationship with God as characterised by their own sacrifice. That's what they were used to. They, they thought they contributed something and so they viewed their own sacrifice as important. Not God's mercy. They saw what they thought they could contribute. And instead of extending mercy, what they extended was scorn. They looked down their noses. They, they didn't value others. But what Jesus wants is those who will humbly submit to the Messiah. See this invitation? It's not for those who think themselves righteous. It can't be, it just doesn't work because the reality of a people who think themselves right by what they do is that they'll never grasp an invitation that is free, that is characterised by grace. We see that at points in the Old Testament and the um, quote is from Hosea 6. Let me read and you'll hear the bit that's quoted. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. See, this quote is essentially saying that the burnt offerings, the, the things that in the Old Testament system the people could produce and perform and offer, they mean nothing. They're empty without acknowledgement of God's relationship with him. It's the repeated theme that we see throughout the Old Testament. We saw it so clearly as we looked at the, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 1 says, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me your hands are full of blood you see God he looks at people's hearts and he doesn't want a people that are desperate to try and prove themselves to try and prove that they're right to try and cover over their sin and blag their way through it doesn't wash with Jesus Jesus's invitation is for humble sinners and that's where we see Jesus address this second question. Look at verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And you see, Jesus' response shows that it's not about religiosity, but about relationship. Jesus answers in verse 15, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? I was away uh, this week, travelling away from home. And when I'm away, I try to get a time to phone my family. Try to get a time in that suits, that works well. Uh, try to aim for 6pm British time, because I know that's a little bit of a buffer between dinner and bed. 
I try and set alarms and, and get to the right time, get on the phone and see their faces and speak to them because their relationships are important to me. I know that's a good time. I know that it works sometimes. I know that they quickly get tired at that time. But it really matters. I want to speak to them. I want to see their faces. But the value that I place on their relationships isn't defined by that phone call. The value I place on that relationship isn't defined by that phone call. And so when my phone runs out of battery before 6pm and I'm outside and I don't make that phone call, that doesn't mean that I don't value their relationships. Sometimes I'm sure that might feel like it. But on the other side, this is probably where it's more clear. When I get home and it's 6pm and I'm sat at the kitchen table having dinner with my family, can you imagine... I get up, I walk through to the lounge, get my phone out, and I phone Elise. I'm there, sat on FaceTime, and I'm phoning when they're at the kitchen table. Can you imagine how stupid that would be? And I can imagine, and I can imagine what would happen. Elise would shout through and go, Simon, why are you being an idiot? And, and that's exactly what it would be, isn't it? Because my... The, the, the value I place on that relationship isn't defined by the practice of picking up the phone. It would be idiotic to be in the same room with them, to get up, go through and value the practice and the phone call. The whole point of the process is the relationship, not the practice itself. If I were to walk through to the lounge, leaving the relationships behind, only to practice my religious practice, it it would be idiotic. Do you see what Jesus is saying? As he talks about the fasting, it is about relationship, not religiosity. It's about relationship, not religiosity. Look at verse 16. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth of an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. And look, maybe they're two... Uh, pictures that aren't very familiar to us. They're not normal like they would have been to the first hearers. But it's pretty simple. Attaching a new thing to an old system doesn't work. If you've got an old bit of fabric, it stretches out, it becomes looser, and it's more likely to rip. If you stick a new bit of fabric on, it's taut and it's tough. And so if there's pressure applied to around that, it's going to rip further on the old fabric. Similarly, the fermentation process that would have happened in these wineskins, like, bo- um, like big bottles. As the wine ages within the skin, once it's expanded with the wine, it becomes brittle. So if you were to empty the skin of the old, brittle, uh, of the old wine and put new wine in it, the brittle skin would break as the fermentation process happens again. 
it would burst. Look, they're two pictures. They're not very familiar to us. They're not normal. Um, here's my picture. This is my bike. It doesn't have a seat on at the moment. Um, this uh, is the way in which you produce power on a bike. You know, this is not going to be mind-blowing. You know this. <laughs> you push power from your legs through the pedal in through the drive chain onto the cassette, which then in turn turns the wheel. Now, most of the power that goes through the bike and the pedals into the crank is transferred through the drive chain. So the drive chain is really important to the power that is put in through the pedals and onto the wheel. Now, here's where it, here's where it starts to make sense. The two significant components in that process that are moving all the time in that power, um, in that power changeover is your chain and your cassette. So when you get a rusty chain, you're losing so much power. When your cassette is dislodged or it's not quite level or you get a little bend in it, you lose all the power. So, any cyclist, that's why the biggest and best change you will make to your bike is to keep your drive chain clean and smooth because your power that goes through your legs will be most efficient. Now, if I take my bike into my friend at Broadrib Cycles on Bissa High Street and I've got a rusty chain, what he'll say to me is, yes, you need to change your, um, your chain, but more than likely is if I just change my chain, I'll get almost no difference. And actually, probably soon enough, my chain will snap. Because unless I change my chain and my cassette, any difference will be lost. Because those things age at the same rate. The two things will do the same thing. And so if I put a new chain on an old cassette, the wear that's already transferred from the chain to the cassette will just carry straight over onto the, onto the chain. So I'd need to change both things at the same time. That's what I'm reliably informed by the people at Broadwood Cycle. <laughs> it, what, what I'd be told is that my drive chain needs a complete overhaul. The whole thing needs to be replaced. You can't just add one new component onto a faulty system. Let me put my bike back. Quickly learn who likes bikes and who doesn't there. <laughs> Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, they need a complete overhaul of their system. They need to replace all of their components they can't just take their religiosity and patch it onto the person of Jesus. It just doesn't work. They've taken their legalistic framework, their understanding of the Old Testament laws, and tried to replace just one part and just patch in Jesus. And what they've ended up with is some kind of idiotic understanding, like getting up from the kitchen table to go and phone my family on the sofa in the other room. They're so focused on the practice of religious fasting that they've overlooked the fact that they're in the presence of the Messiah. And look, as you look at it from the outset, from here, looking at them, it looks stupid. It might sound ridiculous, 
stupid of the Pharisees to miss the point in that way. But that's the natural outcome when we think we contribute anything to our own salvation. Religiosity rules over relationship. Why do you struggle to pray to God when you know you failed him in some way that day? Well, because you're tempted to fall back on that deeply held mindset that it's good people that address God. And so religiosity rules over relationship. Why do you subtly look around and think you're more worthy for a task at town church than other people? Because you're tempted to fall back on your own achievements. Like the things that you've done, that you've contributed to God, make some kind of difference. And religiosity rules over relationship. Why do you look at other Christians and feel inferior, maybe even jealous? Because you look at your own shortcomings and you're convinced that those struggles hamper your ability to approach Jesus. And so religiosity rules over relationship. When is it that you're tempted to think that you contribute anything to your own salvation? Where are you in danger of forgetting that you are, by nature, a humble sinner? How is it that you're tempted to make the mistake of letting religiosity Rule over relationship when it comes to your relationship with God. Jesus is saying to you, he wants a relationship with a humble sinner. Like the simplicity of a crying baby. Will you come before him Depend completely on his work for your relationship? Let me pray. Father, we're sorry. We're sorry that so quickly, so readily, we think we contribute anything to our standing before you. Lord, please would you help us to recognise that we come before you only because of what the Lord Jesus has done. Please would you help us as humble sinners to come before you confident only in what you've done. Amen. We're going to stand and sing together a song that speaks of that humility in knowing that we have a relationship with God not because of what we do because of his grace. So let's sing together.